do here is we journey through books of the Bible, and we go through section by section or verse by verse, and we, we look at what does the Scripture say. And as we do that, we come across some really great portions of Scripture that are very comforting and encouraging and delightful to the soul. And we also come across portions of the Scripture that are very sobering and eye-opening and convicting, and they cut and they, they make us feel uncomfortable. Well, if you're here today, we have one of those today. One of those, one of those portions of Scripture that may make you feel a little uncomfortable, okay? Uh, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking this is probably one of the most difficult sections of Scripture that I've had to, that I've gotten the privilege to preach on in a while. And so I'm going to do, I'm going to pray, I'm going to do my best to present the Word of God and let the Word of God say what it says and try to shepherd our, the shepherd us here to submitting to the Lord and His revealed will in Scripture. So pray with me. Father, thank you that you've given us a book that contains your word, your revealed will. And Father, as we read the pages of Scripture this morning, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things, to see you, to see you accurately in the world, accurately in, in the condition of humanity, accurately. And would you renew our minds? Would you renew in us a resolve to obey your will? A resolve to trust you with our lives. To take you seriously. And run hard after you. Not waste our lives here. I ask that you would help me work through my weakness with your strength. With the power of your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Give each of us ears to hear what you have to say today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 13. We uh, have been journeying through this book for about eight weeks or so, nine weeks, uh, through the book of 1 Samuel. And one of the, the themes that we see repeated in this book is the theme of kingship. 1 Samuel gives us history and how Israel, and when Israel first got their, their very first king, when they, trans, when they transitioned from a monarchy, or from a, a theocracy to a monarchy, all right? They wanted a king to fight their battles. They wanted to be like the other nations who had a king who would lead them in battle and fight their battles for them. Yet, the Israelites had already seen the Lord Yahweh fight their battles for them. And deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. And yet they wanted this. And, it, and in chapter 8 we see this. We see God had already raised up a prophet, Samuel. And he was speaking the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was going out to the people. So the people were getting revelation concerning God's will. Concerning who God is. And yet they wanted a king. And, and in the Old Testament, in the, in the law, in Deuteronomy 17, God made provision and gave instructions for when Israel would have a king. It was anticipated that one day there would be a monarchy. There would be a kingship in Israel. And ultimately, as we've looked at, this points to the greatest king who is to come. Not just David, who would come after Saul, but Jesus, the greatest king who would come and his kingdom would be everlasting. 
But we see that Saul is, is the king that the people get. Saul is the king that the people have chosen. They, they wanted a king like the other nations and God gave them what they wanted even though he wasn't pleased with the request. Even though in the request, behind the request, under the request, they were rejecting God as their king. But God went with it. And God told Samuel to warn the people that there would be painful consequences in having this earthly king. And so God gave it to him. And God anointed him, uh, anointed Saul through Samuel. He anointed him with oil. The spirit of the Lord came upon him. Uh, Saul seemed to start out all right. He seemed to do okay for a bit. But here in chapters 13 through 15, we see the decline of King Saul. We see his, his, his decline, his demise. We see that his leadership starts to crumble. His character flaws are highlighted and he caves under the pressure. Okay? And so as we read this, we're going we're gonna to have, a, we're gonna have a sobering reminder of those who live a life of disobedience and the painful consequences that follow. And we're going to be reminded here that we do have a king who has obeyed the Father fully. Amen? Amen. So King Saul was kind of like a, like a good-looking car that has nice rims, nice paint job, some bumps in the back. But the engine is terrible, and it's clunking. Like, it looks great parked in the, in, at, at the car wash, right? Or in the driveway, but the engine hasn't been maintained appropriately. The, the oil hasn't been checked and the refills haven't taken place and, and so on. And so the engine underneath the hood, there's some issues as, as to how far this car will get you. But it looks great when you're sitting in it, when you have it. Right? So that's kind of what like King Saul was a very good looking man. He was tall, handsome. He seemed desirable for what people would want in a king. But he was very focused on image. He was very focused on external image, keeping face before the people rather than the, doing the hard work and letting God do the internal work of shaping godly character, which I said last week is what sustains leaders when leadership pressure and responsibilities are placed upon their lives. Those who haven't done the foundational hard work of growing in Christ-like character and godly character will crumble the more responsibility and the more influence and the more pressures come upon their life. They'll crumble underneath that without that foundation of having a genuine, intimate relationship with God and godly character. And that's why the Apostle Paul, when he prescribed leaders elders for the church, pastors for the church in the New Testament, the primary character qualities, the primary conditions or, or, or qualifications are all about character. Not so much competency, but more so character. There are some competency issues like teaching the word. And so God cares about character. God looks at the heart. And that's one of the messages that we learn in this book in 1 Samuel. That man looks on the outward appearance... But God looks at the heart. He looks right here. What's going on right here? And so here's our big idea. I'm going to summarize 
chapter 13 and chapter 14 for the sake of time. I've bit off more, more than I think I can chew here. But, but we're going to try to, we're going to land in chapter 15 and we're going to address some challenging issues that this text presents us. Okay? But here's our big idea. God desires our obedience more than our sacrifices. And failure to prioritize it will lead to painful consequences. God desires our obedience more than our sacrifices. And failure to prioritize it will lead to painful consequences. So let's get into the narrative here. Saul claimed a victory that his son Jonathan accomplished. Look at verse 3 and, and verse 13. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. That was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All of Israel heard it and said, Saul has defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So his son leads him to victory. He says, hey, Saul has won the victory. All right. Remember, this is something that's important to him. Image, he wants to be perceived by the people as doing well, as light, keeping face. And yet it was his son who was actually on the, on the front lines who led in this victory. We, li- we read a little bit further in verse 8. He says, he waited seven days, and at the time appointed by Samuel, but at, at, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And, and Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said to him, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed at, and, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For there, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. And so... Here is a summary of chapter 13 from Matthew Henry. He says that Saul appears a very silly prince, infatuated in his counsels, invaded by his neighbors, deserted by his soldiers, disordered by his own spirit, and sacrificing in confusion, chidden by Samuel, rejected by God from being king. And the people appear here a very miserable people, disheartened, disheartened, and dispersed, diminished, plundered, disarmed. This they got by casting off God's government and making themselves like the nations. All their glory departed from them. And so what we see here is that Paul in presumption, or I'm sorry, Saul, this is not the Apostle Paul, this is King Saul. 
Saul, in his presumption, it led him to make unlawful sacrifices. Now, why is this important? Because the Old Testament prescribed that the priests were to make the sacrifices, not the king. So he's moving into territory that the Lord hasn't called him into. This was Samuel's job to present the sacrifices. And so he he was impatient and he was presumptuous. And so he he offered these sacrifices. And this is this was his response. I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. Verse verse 12. The, the, the message says, so I took I took things into my own hands and sacrificed the burnt offerings. The NLT says, so I, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings myself, and then you came. So we see he's acting presumptuously, doing what God hadn't prescribed him to do, God hadn't called him to do. And Samuel confronts him and calls his actions foolish and calls them disobedient. He says that he hasn't kept the commandment of the Lord. If he had just waited a little bit longer, he had Samuel, the prophet, who had the word of the Lord, who God was speaking through. And so he took matters in his own in his own hands. Uh, verse 9 and 10 says, So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering to me, and here the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And so what we see here is Saul's leadership in decline in response to his poor decisions, his disobedience to the command of the Lord, his presumption, his impatience. Samuel says, you have, you have done foolishly. You haven't kept the command of the Lord. The Lord would have established your kingdom forever. And so the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. Who's that speaking of? Speaking of King David, who we, who we will hear about and be introduced to in chapter 16. A man after God's own heart. Somebody that the Father delighted in. Somebody whose heart led, he led the people with integrity of heart. And he shepherded Israel with a skillful hand. Somebody who treasured God and delighted in God and cared more about his relationship with God than anybody else. King that God has sought after. The kind of king that God has sought after. Who points us to the greatest king, Jesus And so Saul made excuses for his disobedience. He said the people were scattering. Okay? And Samuel, you didn't come at the appointed time. Now notice a little bit of blame shifting here, because we see this later on. And and we're reminded of of the the nature of humanity back in in Genesis chapter 3, when when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, there's this response of blame shifting. The devil made me do it. The serpent deceive me. Adam says, the woman you gave me. That's, that's like a double blame shift. That's like, don't go there. I mean, the woman and then God, the woman you gave me? Like, okay. And that's human nature. Right? To blame shift instead of take ownership and responsibility and acknowledge, I have done wrong. There's this tendency to try to justify ourselves and be our, our, defend our own righteousness rather than simply confess we've done wrong, we've disobeyed the Lord. So Paul's, or Saul's giving his excuses 
for his disobedience. The people were scattered. Samuel, you didn't come at the, at the time exactly. And the Philistines were, were assembling together. And so perhaps he was afraid and anxious and had, felt like he just had to do something, had to make something happen before things got worse rather than trust God and do the next right thing. And so we see that Saul was hasty and impatient in his disobedience. One commentator says that when Samuel, when Samuel, when Samuel came, Saul was ready with the plausible excuse on the ground of expediency. He vindicated his procedure. John Stott says that Saul's sin was a mixture of impatience, arrogance, sacrilege, and disobedience. King Saul was a mixed bag. And we see his, his flaws being revealed more and more. Eugene Peterson says this, that the dismantling of Saul has nothing to do with the Philistines. It is caused from within by his defection from God. The inner world of obedience is far more real than the outer world of war. See, he disobeyed God, not because of these external things, not because Samuel, not because the Philistines, but he, he lacked this internal obedience. And so we see in chapter 14, we see a contrast with his son. Instead of being fearful and disobedient and acting presumptuously, we see his son Jonathan acting courageously in faith. And he makes, he makes this statement in chapter 14. He's, he tells his armor bearer, come. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, that it, it may be that the Lord, the Lord will work for us from nothing. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. I love this statement. I love the, the courage and the faith of Jonathan. His, his actions were honorable, while his father tended towards cowardice. He tended to be courageous and lead in battle as his father ought to have been doing. And he says, hey, look, maybe we can take, take these guys. Okay, and there's a bunch of them. And it's just him and his armor bearer. Now, now Israel didn't have the kind of weapons that the Philistines had. The Philistines had the iron. Okay, they had the iron. They were able to make the weapons. And, and, and it was only Jonathan and Saul that had a sword, right? And so they didn't have the same kind of weapons. And so they needed some kind of strategic attack. And, and so Jonathan comes up with this, with this plan. And, and his, his, his statement is, maybe the Lord will, will deliver. Maybe the Lord will work for us today. His, his faith is obviously in God to work. And, and, and he acknowledges God can save by many or God can save by few. Just like with Gideon, right? Like it's, it's not about the, the, the might of the warrior. It's the Lord who delivers. And God has done that for Israel over and over. But don't worry, y'all. We're going to talk about divine warfare here. Some of y'all probably have some questions as we look at this. What's up with this? With the God of the Bible leading his people into war. And so we see that the Lord saved. Ultimately, in chapter 14, God delivered the Israelites from the hands 
of the Philistines, which is a part of why God said he would uh, put Saul into kingship, that, that Saul would, would, um, uh, would fight and, and that, that, they, that the Israelites would be delivered from the hands of the Philistines. And it says that, that the first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men when it was, when it was as were a hollow half, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. And the garrison, even the raiders, trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Then the other, the Israelites, the other, uh, the army, uh, engaged in battle and then at the end of this chapter the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon and so we see in chapter 15 this command to destroy the Amalekites in verse 1 Samuel said to Saul the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalekite, with with what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, Camel and donkey. Now we can keep reading, which I want to spend more time on, but I think some of us are going to have a problem with this. The modern years as we hear verses like this have a hard time swallowing something like this. Go destroy this whole people group. What do we make of this? Okay? What do we make of this? And and so, so God gives this command... For, for Saul to lead in battle against the Malachite. Now, now I, I think it's important for us first to know some history, first of all, with the Malachites. Okay? Because once God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, it was this people group that attacked the Israelites when they were weary and defenseless. Alright? So notice back, you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. He says, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, cut off your tail and those who were were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget this is the law of Moses. This is the Torah. Now, I know this is severe. And I'm, I'm going to admit it. This is severe and this is challenging. Right? This is the Bible. There's, there's some more history here in the law of, law of Moses. Uh, Exodus 17. The Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a, in a book and recite in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So what do we do with this? Because it's passages like this that give ammunition to the skeptics of the Bibles, 
of the Bible's divine authorship, of, of, of the, the God of the Bible. And so it's texts like this that the atheist wrestles with and wants to pull out and say, you see, you see, I thought your God is a God of love. Why would this happen? Or, you know, there's, there's another false conclusion that some, some make with this is they're trying to see the compatibility of, 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 of um, passages like this and the God of the New Testament. And some people make the false conclusion that the God of the New Testament is different from the God of the Old Testament. We don't want to go there, right? And we certainly don't want to reject the God of the Bible who he he has revealed himself to be. So what do we make of these hard passages that speak about war? (coughs) Some call it holy war, right? We know about Islam and and this, this idea of jihad, right? In the name of their God, their, you know, there's, there's killing of people, infidels, Right, and so, so here, here's a couple things here. J.D. Greer and Heath Thomas in their commentary said this was not a conquest. Speaking of First Samuel 15, this was not a conquest, but a war of justice. The goal of the attack was not to make Saul rich, but to execute justice on a rebellious group of people. And Saul was explicitly told to take no prisoners and to leave the wealth alone. Okay, so so there's there's one one helpful thought here. And then they go on and, and they highlight a couple different points that as we as we try to make sense of this, we need to know that God, the God of the Bible is a holy God. He's a loving God and he is a good creator. He's a holy God. He's a loving God and he's a good creator. And holy war in the Bible is not holy war at all. Actually, many, many, most scholars refuse to use that term holy war. They prefer to use divine warfare. And so biblical warfare is not primarily about people going to fight in the name of God, but rather God going to fight on behalf of his people. Most scholars today do not use holy war to describe what we find in 1 Samuel 15. Rather, they use the language divine warfare. And so divine warfare was prescribed by Yahweh as divine judgment this was divine judgment and and god gave abraham in genesis 15 god gave abraham a peek into this judgment that would come upon israel's enemies He, he gave him a peek into what would happen to the israelites in egypt that they would be slaves there in verse 14 genesis 15 verse 14 i will bring judgment upon the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions and then in verse 16, he says, they shall, come, uh, they shall come back here in the fourth generations, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so notice what he's pointing to here, that the, the sin of the Amorites was going to get to a point where God says that's enough. Right? And then there would be judgment, and the judgment would come through war. War on a people group. Now that's, that's harsh. That's severe. I'm aware of that. And so I'm trying to to lead us in making sense of this and wrestling with this idea that many have stumbled over. And so divine warfare was not based on the righteousness of Israel, but rather on the wickedness of the nations. It wasn't that Israel was a lot better than everybody else, that they were less sinners than everybody else. Right? 
uh, Deuteronomy 9 says that, he says, do not say in your heart after the Lord, Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or uprightness of heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of this, these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. That he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to his fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we see that divine warfare is also, it's limited but not repeatable. Okay? It's limited but not repeatable. Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere are we told to engage in the name of Jesus in this kind of activity. Christians aren't to start crusades. Right? And, and, and take up and take up guns and shoot people that don't confess Jesus. The Bible doesn't call Christians to that kind of lifestyle. Jesus described his kingdom as one that's not of this world, and he said, If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would fight. Now this is important. This is important for us to get this. Divine warfare was commanded by a merciful God. Divine warfare is not genocide or ethnic, ethnic cleansing, but an elimination of false worship. And justice is meted out by a community. Justice is meted out is meted out community in divine or in community in divine warfare. Now, for those who have a problem with this idea of divine warfare. It pro you probably have a problem with the idea of divine judgment as well, just in general. And so I think it's helpful to be reminded that this isn't the first time that, that God has taken out people. Okay, think back to Genesis chapter 6. It wasn't just one people group. It was the entire world. Everybody. Every animal. Every child. Every woman. Everything. There was a global flood. And the Bible says that God was grieved that he made mankind. Because every thought and intent of his heart was evil. It was so corrupt. God just said, we're going to start over. And he did. He started over, but he preserved a people. Noah and his family who trusted him and were saved through the, through the flood from the judgment so this isn't the first time we've seen God bring this divine judgment. And it's not the last time. Because if you read the book of Revelation, you see Jesus in the New Testament, and the one who John describes as full of grace and truth, you see Jesus coming back on a white horse to make war and bring judgment on those who rebelliously reject His reign in their lives. And so... So if, 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 if you're struggling with this concept, it might be that it's, it's the divine judgment aspect that, that, that is the, the, the point of struggle for you. And I would recommend reading the book of Romans and studying the book of Romans to, to help you understand and get a biblical worldview of God's righteousness and bringing judgment upon sinners. And God's righteousness, His Justice and righteousness in making sinners right with him. 
right? The book of Romans, Paul systematically works through gospel truth and the reality that man is a sinner. We've sinned against the holy God and we deserve judgment. But God sent his son, Jesus, to bear our judgment, to die in our place so that we can be made right and forgiven. And so Paul wrestles with these hard concepts of divine judgment and the righteous judgment of God upon humanity. He says, even in speaking about government, in in Romans chapter 13, he says that, that Christians are to submit to the governing authorities, knowing that those who are in government, in the place of government, they don't bear the sword in vain, but they're ministers of God's wrath to execute upon those who do evil. So like I said, this is going to be an uncomfortable message. Aren't you glad you came today? If you're here for the first time, I'm sorry. But this is the scripture. And so let's get back to 1 Samuel 15 and Saul and the the narrative here. Because I I want to make sure that we're addressing this issue. Because I don't want you to tune me out and tune out the rest of this message. Uh, because you're, you're hung up on verse 2. And if you need a resource that, that you want to dig into this a little bit more with, um, there's a book called Holy War that you can read from. It's um, it's by Thomas, last name Thomas. Holy War, and it addresses this issue. Holy War. So verse 15, Saul defeated the Malachites from Hivalah, and as far as sure which is east of, the, of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, of the oxen, of the fatted calves and the lambs, and all that was good. And he would not utterly destroy them all. All that was despised or worthless, they devoted to destruction. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. (laughs) Just note the self-focus here. Note the man-centeredness and the self-focus here. He set up a monument to himself, and he turned and he passed on, and he went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said, Blessed be Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Malachites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you, though you are little in your own eyes and you, and are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king of Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction, the sinners, the Malachites and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil spoil, and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Samuel said, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of, of, of Amalek, 
And I have devoted the, the Malachites to destruction. But the people took the spoil and the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen to the fat of rams. Then, I'm sorry, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the, the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Notice that Saul's disobedience led to his decline, led to his rejection, uh, being rejected as king. He rejected the word of the Lord and God rejected him as king. But notice his response. He said in verse 24 that it's because I feared the people. Saul had a misplaced fear. He was commanded to fear the Lord and serve him. But he feared the people. If this, if this statement is accurate, and he did what he did because of the fear of man. He did very foolishly and wickedly. Proverbs gives us wisdom and tells us that the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Amen. The fear of man is toxic and it paralyzes people. And it holds people back from doing the will of God. This week I sent out an article to our church on two, uh, the, two fear, no, the fear of the Lord versus unhealthy fear. <clears throat> and in that article, I, I just mentioned how the fear of the Lord helps us to conquer those unhealthy fears that hold us back. And this is something that Saul was lacking because Saul didn't take God seriously, didn't give proper weight to who God is and what God says and what God demanded of his life. He gave in to the fear of the people. And it was a snare to him and his leadership. It led him to, to fall. It led, to him, it led him to be rejected. Ed Welch in his book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says this. He says, the fear of man can be summarized this way. We replace God with people. And instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. When we are in our teens, it is called peer pressure. When we are older, it's called people-pleasing. Recently, it's been called codependency. With these labels in mind, we can see the fear of man everywhere. He goes on to write, and he says that people are our favorite idol. We exalt them and their perceived power above God. We worship them as ones who have godlike exposing gazes or godlike ability to fill us with esteem or love or admiration or acceptance or respect or other psychological desires. Yet it's a snare. The fear of man is a snare. It was said about a group of people, the, the religious leaders in John chapter 12, that they didn't confess Jesus. Because of fear of the people. They love the praises of men more than the praises of God. They cared more about what people thought rather than what God thinks. 
And this is why Jesus tells us in the Gospels, he commissioned his disciples and said, hey, don't fear man who can kill the body. Because it's going to get tough. As you're sent out on mission, you're going to be like sheep among wolves. And they're going to be vicious to you as you peacefully proclaim the good news, the gospel of peace. And he says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but rather fear, fear God who can kill the body and then cast the soul in hell. And so having this healthy, pure fear of the Lord frees us up to being dominated by the fear of man, the fear of evil, the fear of death. There are great benefits to fearing the Lord. Walking in a a God-oriented life rather than a man-centered, narcissistic, people-focused, people-pleasing life that's more focused on me rather than God and others. And so Saul's confronted by Samuel and he confesses his sin, but he does so, his confession is not accompanied with repentance. Okay? This is important. Because we believe that we should confess our sins. That's important to us. But your confession and my confession of sin can... Just our confession of sin isn't always accompanied by true repentance. Or just because there's a confession of sin, it doesn't mean it's accompanied by true repentance. Right? We need to confess our sins. That's a starting point. We need to acknowledge, I have sinned against the holy God. But there needs to be some change. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. And Saul didn't seem to be too too focused on changing his actions. He was more focused on saving face and keeping honor before the people. He says, I've sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. And again, he's, he's, he's putting it on the people because I obeyed their voice. Like subtly, he's like, they kind of made me do it. Right? He, again, he's blame shifting. He's, he's given in to fear of people. He's acting presumptuously, impatiently, rather than waiting, listening, obeying. This word, listen, obey, is used about eight times in 1 Samuel 15, the Hebrew word for it. And so it's the emphasis of this passage. Oh, listen, obey. And when when Saul failed to do so, he confessed that he didn't, but it didn't accompany repentance. He says, he even even asked forgiveness. He says, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said, came and said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So notice he confessed and he asked for forgiveness. He confessed his sin and asked for forgiveness. But verse 30 says, he told Samuel, honor me now before the elders in my people. It's as if Saul's just saying, okay, I, I messed up, but like, let, let's just move on real quick. Let's just move it. Honor me now. Right? I mean, it reminds me of like, like a, a, a husband who cheats on his wife. And he, and he says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I cheated on you. And like, let's just forget about it and move on. Or maybe look, have been looking at porn. And maybe not, oh, I, I looked at porn, but let's just forget about it and move on. I'm sorry, forgive me. Right? Like there's, there's, there's some healing and restoration that needs to take place in the relationship. Sin damages our relationships. 
And ultimately, it, it affects our relationship with God. And so there's a contrast between Saul and Samuel here, or Saul and David here, because later on we see David as a king, we see him committing some sins that seem a lot bigger than what Saul did, right? He committed adultery, murder, covered it up. But when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, he repented and he said, he, he cried out to God for mercy and he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Cast me not away from your presence. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. David's focus in the repentance and the confession was this relationship with God. He acknowledged his sin. He had his, and perhaps Paul, when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 7 about true repentance, about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, perhaps he had this in mind here, this worldly sorrow that Saul seems to have when Paul wrote, for worldly sorrow produces death. But godly sorrow produces repentance leading to life. Right? And so true repentance is accompanied by a grief over the sin and the damage that the sin has caused to the relationships that are most dear to us, especially God and our relationship with Him, our communion with Him specifically. And so Saul just wanted to just move on and act like everything was okay. He wanted to, to save face, if you will. At the very end of this chapter, we see both God and Samuel grieved. It says that Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house of Gibeah and of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Notice how close Samuel's heart is with the heart of God. The grief and the sorrow that, that he feels, that, that God feels over the situation. And so we have a challenge here. Did God know that this was going to happen? Because God knows everything, right? Did God, did God uh, regret his decision in that he, like, oh, I made a bad decision in, in, in anointing Saul as king? He knew it was going to happen, but he was sorry. Just like in Genesis 6, he was, he, he was grieved by the sin of the sinner. And he expresses that in real time. He expresses uh, in this passage, we see uh, the, the, the regret or the grief that God has over this situation. God grieves over sin, just like Jesus wept over the, the Israelites who were rejecting him. He said, I wanted to gather you like hens, but you were unwilling. And Jesus wept. And so we see the heart of God coming through in real time. He, he's relating to humanity in real time and space, though he's not limited by time and space. We see him expressing his heart through these words of regret or grief or sorrow. We see ultimately in Jesus him embodying the heart of God and the character of God and expressing that. And so here's good news, saints. We have a king who has obeyed fully 
we're reminded here that Israel needs another king. Right? Israel needs another king and God's going to raise up a David. But, but even beyond David, Israel still needs an even better king than David. And that's King Jesus. And He has become our King. If you are a Christian, He has become your King, your Lord, and your Savior. You have confessed Him as the Lord of your life. You've accepted His reign in your life. And that changes everything. And we get His righteousness. We get His acceptance. And He empowers us by His Spirit to obey Him. He works in us, giving us the ability, the power, the desire to do what He's called us to do. We have a better King. An everlasting King, a perfect King, a righteous King, a gracious and a merciful King who does accept sinners who turn to Him in genuine repentance, who does pardon the sins, great sins of great sinners like you and me. We have a king who has courageously faced death and hell and the grave and faced Satan and his demons. And he went and he conquered the grave for us. We have a king who reigns forever. And so in application today, take obedience to God's word seriously. If Jesus is your king, take obedience to God's word seriously. His words, let His words hold your attention and shape the way you think, speak, and live. Don't let entertainment, YouTube videos, headlines shape your worldview more than what God says in Scripture. There's all kinds of other voices out there that we can just give into and allow those voices to shape our convictions and our way of thinking and our way of living. But let the Word of God shape the way you think, live, and speak. And resist, the, resist and conquer the fear of man by fearing God. Amen. Don't let the fear of man dominate in your life. Avoid hasty and presumptuous decisions. All throughout the Bible we see when men and women hastily acted without looking to God didn't turn out well for them and yet we see those who wait on God those who look to God those who pray those those who obey God and do the next right thing we see God showing up for them even though they're thrown into the furnace I, I love the the response of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego we know that our God is able to deliver us and he will but even if he doesn't, know this, King, we're not going to bow our knee and worship, right? And so avoid hasty and presumptuous decisions. And lastly, take sin seriously by grieving over it, turning from it, knowing that it damages your relationship with God and with others. If you all would stand with me. And I would like us to respond in praying from Psalm 19 and Psalm 51, these prayers of David. Psalm 19, starting in verse 12, and if we could read this and pray this together, and then Kevin will lead us in a response song. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. 
Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So we say amen to these prayers, Lord. Deliver us from just moving on and making things look good externally while our internal life is in chaos, disorder, unrighteous. Bring the order of righteousness to our hearts and minds and our lives, to our homes. Righteousness and peace and joy in your Holy Spirit. Bring your kingdom into our lives. Your reign into our lives, God. May our worship be genuine. May we focus on that which matters most. And obeying you. Take my 